You're listening to the GamesIndustry.biz podcast. I'm James Batchelor and I'm joined this week by... Matt Andrahan. Rebecca Valentine. And Hayden Taylor. We've got a nice array of discussions this week. Uh, we're not kind of bringing up the usual the usual loot box or crunch or anything else that we seem to be discussing every other week. We've got a nice mix of topics, starting with the ESA's proposals for the new E3. Now, Matt, you kind of covered this, so you know a bit more of the detail. What, what are the highlights? Well, I guess highlights is uh, it's an odd term because you could describe much of it as lowlights. It really depends what you want from your E3, I suppose. Um, I guess the, well, let's just say the standouts, right? So the standouts for me were 10,000 additional gamers on the show floor, which I haven't been to E3 since the games were, since consumers were being let in. Um, and I haven't heard anyone, at least in the press or the industry, really kind of welcome it as a positive move for the show in terms of a place to do business. So that seems to be a bit of a, a bit of a black mark on this stuff. Um, the other the other thing was um, a new queuing system, which I guess would ease the burden on the people that do turn up with with no kind of solid industry reason to be there and have to queue up for like three hours to play ten minutes of a Call of Duty game. Uh, sounds a bit like a Disney Fast Pass kind of system. Something awful called queuetainment, oh. which. Seems to be sort of like direct marketing of people who are sort of stuck waiting in line for something, which sounds very, very grubby indeed. Good. I mean, I think it, that's already more... my least favourite buzzword ever. Yeah, and and then and then uh, there's a lot more focus on um, influencers, celebrity appearances, uh, sort of marketing activations around the confluence of those two things. So, I think one of the examples that was given was you'd have like players from the Los Angeles Lakers playing a basketball game with PewDiePie in front of everybody. And that would be like right on the show floor. And I mean, look, so you people have been to E3 more than I have uh, on this podcast. And I'd be interested to hear hear your perspectives on this. But this really seems like a massive fudge from the ESA for me because it seems like it's going to be neither fish nor fowl. Now, so... If, even with the additional gamers on the show floor, I think it would only push things up to about 30,000 people at E3. Now, this is 10 times smaller than Gamescom, um, but it also seems like it wouldn't be as well set up for doing business as game, Gamescom because it's not clear that there's going to be a dedicated day just for people to do their jobs, you know, to meet, have meetings, coverage for the press, that kind of thing. Uh, there's also not, not going to be a dedicated business area necessarily. So it's, it sort of seems to be tiptoeing towards being a purely consumer event full of like attack and glitz, if you want to call it glitz, but that kind of thing as 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 Gamescom is, but without any of the concessions to the fact to the roots of the event. E3 is a retail event. It's about people involved with the business of promoting games and releasing games, getting an idea of what's coming up. It's definitely an interesting way to shift into a consumer event. I mean, I haven't been, I've, I've been to PAX West twice. That's that's the main consumer event I've been to. I haven't been to Comic-Cons or anything like that. Um, and I mean, we're Gamer Network, Reno's Gamer Network, Reno's PAX also, also, so there's that. But this seems very different from PAX. This seems, as, as a consumer event, like this whole idea of 
Q-tainment or whatever. They they said they hoped that this is a quote from them. Um, they hope to create an exclusive appointment only activations for select attendees who will create buzz and fear of missing out. Uh-oh. Like that seemed. I so I go to when I go to PAX. If I was to go to PAX as a consumer and not as a business person, I would want to go to try a whole bunch of games. Like that would be my goal. Um, but going to this, it sounds like they're acknowledging the fact that by letting all these people in, they are absolutely not going to be able to play a lot of games because they're focusing on the, they're focusing it around the fact that they're going to have long lines. Like what, (laughs) what, that, that doesn't, I I mean, maybe it'll work. It's, it's definitely something that I don't think any other shows are doing, but it doesn't strike me as a great premise to build a show around. To be fair, even without the twenty-five thousand public consumers going into the uh, into the show, I, I seem to recall hearing tales like um, Nintendo's booth has always got like a four-hour queue. Like even when it, even when it was kind of industry only, and I'm doing air quotes, and that doesn't work on an audio pod- podcast. But when it was industry only, like there were still like four-hour queues for Nintendo. My concern about this is like it's like you say, it's a shift towards consumer show. But it is still it is still a trade show. It is still meant to be the trade show where the biggest announcements are made per year, and you you can't really do both to the extent that they're trying to do it. Like you can't. This feels like a kind of a having their cake and eat it. It's like right, we're still going to be the big trade show where all the biggest announcements are made, all the biggest um, figures in the industry come. But we're also going to be a trade show, sorry, a consumer show, where all the best, all the best gamers get to come and try out the games, and we're going to be cool and popular. And that's like there's there's a juxtaposition there that just doesn't quite work. And my concern as well, I've only done E3 once, but it was quite crowded, particularly that um, I think it's the West Hall where Sony and Nintendo were. That already gets quite crowded before you add in an extra 10,000 public bodies, particularly given that most of the public bodies are walking around not paying attention to where they're going because they're too busy with their selfie sticks broadcasting live on Twitch. Like, it's just going to be a mess. There's rumours of them going to do an an industry-only day on Tuesday, but one day is not enough to get done what business needs to be done at E3. Well, I mean, they could just just copy the the Gamescom format which is just having a completely discrete business area. So you'll have, you can have parts of the consumer and parts of the people that go there to do business. The thing with E3 is, I mean, it's, I mean, you can, you know, it's roots through as a trade show, but I think it's debatable for how long it has, you know, how long ago it really was a tried and true trade show and not some sort of horrible compromise. I mean, I mean, yes, the, the big announcements are made, but that's not trade, that's consumer, right? Like a lot of people within the industry will know about these games. Like the press conferences, they are they are consumer messaging. They're not really industry messaging. I mean, it's messaging to us, we're the press, but we're privy to less information than a lot of people that work in the industry. And yes, of course, people that work in the industry aren't going to be aware of exactly what's at Sony's press conference. But if you take the number of people that see that press conference online, percentage of those that are consumers that is a consumer show that's what that is the thing with e3 has been that the actual experience of being at e3 and what e3 is to the world which is a bunch of marketing material online the two completely different things and e3 seems to feel like it needs the physical e3 show to reflect more what it is online now which is a kind of a more consumer let the world look at the games industry for a while thing. Um, and that seems to be what this is all about, right? Like creating something that's about making games excited rather than making press feel like they got their, you know, 20 previews worth or whatever. I mean, I would anticipate that if this ends up, assuming this ends up happening, 
uh, we're going to see a shift, at least in how the press does business at E3. Like all of the all of the press conferences that happen leading up to E3, those are those are so much easier to cover online. I do not need to be at those in person. There's, I mean, yeah, it, it feels kind of good and it's cool to see it in person, but but there, it's 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 actively a problem to be there in person in terms of coverage because you have to take your laptop and you're sitting there trying to frantically write things up as you're watching them. You're missing things that are happening on stage and the internet's probably terrible. So you're probably not writing anything you could submit anyway. So it's better for everybody to stay home at this point. And then like, there's so many more offsite events when I've, I, I did not go this last year, but I went the two years prior. And honestly, I feel like I got more out of the days leading up to E3 where I was making appointments offsite at different, you know, the hotels or like EA Play, actually. it's a, It was a consumer event a couple of years ago, but it still had a whole bunch of in- interviews and backstage previews that we could make appointments for, and it was very helpful. But there was so much more going on offsite. I imagine that either everything like that will just start moving more and more offsite, or they'll just shift it a couple months forward and start doing press stuff at uh, uh, Gamescom more than I, more than they already do. Yeah, I, I mean, I wouldn't be surprised just to see that. That's thing that happens right that more and more companies will start doing press focus press only events ahead of e3 rather than trying to do it on the show floor because the last few years the years you've been there rebecca i mean these are post e3 already being effectively a consumer show because if you know i was watching the e3 press conferences as a journalist over 10 years ago and sony used to show fucking pie charts and stuff you know pie charts (laughs) and line graphs and all of this and like it doesn't it do that. I miss the pie charts. Well, no, me too. But that's because it's our job to know the pie chart thing. But it's not like no one <laughs> online wants to know about the pie charts, so they're not there anymore. And like you know, you've gone from E3 uh, from EA showing you know them diagrams of consumer demographics and stuff to just having a straight up consumer show packed with influencers. Uh, that's E3. The way E3 has changed in a nutshell in ten years. Um, so uh, all of this makes a lot of sense to me, and I, it does make me wonder like. Are we in the press the only people that are still trying to cling on to this idea of E3 as a place to, quote-unquote, get things done, uh, when actually it hasn't been that in bloody ages? And My experience of E3 as someone who hasn't really been is just hearing people complain about how difficult it is to do any work at E3, when maybe actually the point is that E3 is not a place to get any work done. Like you say, Rebecca, I mean, when we, we have people at E3 every year, and, and back in the UK and Europe, we tend to have to stay up late to cover the press conferences. And the main reason we have to do that is because the people in, in the US are at the press conferences and are unable to cover the press conferences because they're at the press conferences. So it is this weird thing where like, we send people to LA and it would actually make a lot more sense for them to stay in a hotel room and watch it online. Because then they could write and we don't have to stay up till one o'clock in the morning to do that exact thing. By, by being there, it actually weakens your ability to cover the thing. And that kind of encapsulates it. The main thing the press seem to get from E3, though, is to an extent interviews, but also like the, the hands-on, the previews, the over-the-shoulder footage, the actual capture footage, like that's, that's what they get, the, the, the coverage and the previews of all the newly announced games. And that is, again, going back to journalists complaining, that's becoming increasingly difficult because of the sheer, partly because of the sheer number of games available, but also because of the sheer number of people there, including the consumers who are kind of not essentially getting in the way, not to say that journalists have priority over anyone else there, but it might, I can understand how it's frustrating for you know our peers on consumer sites who are frantically trying to just get like ten minutes of you know capture footage of the new Call of Duty, and there you have like you know 
5,000 flipping, you know, you, I say YouTubers, like people with a YouTube channel with 100 subscribers, like in front of them trying to play themselves just for the fun of it. Like that, that's the issue. The, while we're on the media, like obviously like the, this follows in the wake of all the um, media leaks that happened with um, ESA letting slip the uh, personal details of all the journalists who attended this year and then several years prior. And so this feels like this pitch deck feels like a, a kind of a, a response to, right, we've pissed off the world's media. We need to work out how we still keep people excited about that, given that the vast majority of people that actually write about this and the, the produce the coverage around our show are now reluctant to help us. Well, I mean, the, but there was part of the pitch deck talked about having like paid media yes we're going to bring this up with yeah. one of the advantages being that they can control the messaging so actually i would say maybe the opposite mm. of that maybe there's evidence that they don't really care yeah. about the fact that a lot of people might be selling me three because what they'd rather do is just have them just pulling names out of the air here ign and GameSpot as kind of paid media partners um the the kind of like put out content in a more sort of ESA friendly way or something. Again, that's all speculation. Like that, and again, we should say as well that I, I don't think the ESA has even acknowledged this pitch deck. No. I think it all all came to uh, GameDaily.biz uh, through through other channels, and then they didn't really respond to whether or not it's legitimate or not. But like, I don't think there's any reason to doubt that it that it's no. Then it's, 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 it's it's all proposals, isn't it? But yeah, now that was what I was going to move to was like because our, our um. Our friends over at uh, VG247 kind of made a, a bigger deal of that specific slide The because uh, it wasn't just control the message, it was control the content and the messaging. And that alone kind of raises some red flags as to the, the intention of this. Like, it, it, I wouldn't even say like anything massively negative comes out of E3 in terms of games coverage. The vast majority of previews or videos or whatever I ever see is generally people caught up in that initial excitement of, oh my God, this is brand new, this looks really interesting, Time will tell, but it looks really cool. I don't, I can't think of... But any time someone tries to control the content and the message, it sounds like they're aware that it might not go the way they want to, and therefore they need to control it, and that's never a good sign. I would say, with that, like... I'm not sure that E3 is ever, like, 100% positive, really, like, like you're sort of implying there. Like, you do see it quite a lot with some of the press conferences, especially EA, where the response online is just one of just yeah. absolute scorn it's like what is this ridiculous opulent like why have, why have they bought out these rappers and this these cars and like these professional football players you know it's supposed to be a conference about video games and that's perhaps what they're kind of talking about when they when they mean control the message because there is you know ea is famous for one thing above all else in my mind and that is how how the industry comes together to just be really really snarky on twitter for about a week <laughs> um so like there is a message to be controlled because you know people like you know big games companies they're not gonna like you know, games journalists and consumers sitting there being like, ah, snark, 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 snark. But it's kind of, you know, it's like a community building thing. So I can see why they wouldn't like that messaging, but it does, I think, bring everyone together in just really kind of universally hating something stupid that a company like EA has maybe done. Yeah, but I don't, I, but I don't think that that's the part that they they can't like. So they can't control people no. being snarky online i don't think that's what they're referring to i think and also i think it, like this is probably the, a big question here like do we think that this whole idea of working only with 
with select media partners relates to the press conferences because that's the one part I think that's just not going to change, that they're still going to want Xbox, Sony, whoever, to be up front on, on E3 week, giving an hour of their best and broadcast it to anybody who can possibly watch it. Like, I don't think there's going to be any restriction on that part. I think I, I assume that the, the media partners would be stuff more like streaming from the show floor and stuff like that. Yeah. Yeah, that's, that was my reason. Like, you, know, you cannot control the message around publicly online press conferences. And I, like, like you, Hayden, I enjoy the Twitter snark every year. It's, um, it's very much the, uh, the Homer Simpson, you know, it's hi- very easy to criticise, fun too. Like, that's, that's, that's Twitter every, every E3. Like, just the comp- competition to see who can do the most funny, sarcastic tweet. What I think they're referring to there is, like, like I said, like the access to stuff on the show floor. So case in point, um, Cyberpunk like the, last the, year. The celebrity access. <laughs> the, uh, the opportunities to play NBA 2K19 with the LA Lakers after you've right. enjoyed your Q-tainment no, right, no. like so yeah. James's idea like that's th- that's a good thought right like so instead of having press show up to write you know ri- to do written and probably not video but written previews of some game that they saw behind closed doors we'll get something like PewDiePie doing you know 10 minutes with whatever next year's Cyberpunk 27. 77 yeah. is or something well, like that so that's the thing like so cyberpunk 2077 when i went in 2018 because that's the only e3 i've done the only public presence of cyberpunk 2077 big highly anticipated game was a cgi trailer at the end of the xbox um conference and there was nothing else at the show itself there was a behind the scenes demo which a gameplay demo which everyone was going nuts for you look at that trailer you're not impressed it's just okay yes this is a nice sci-fi setting you watch the gameplay that turned a lot of heads that's what people were talking about that week that was accessible to vast majority of the games press hell i didn't even have an appointment and i managed to get into a session there because i was interviewing them um, the ceo later in the day so i managed to kind of wangle my way in but that that would be presumably what esa would be controlling by not only controlling which appointments you can make via this digital app, via this booking system, but also by controlling who is and isn't at the show. Well, or or who is or isn't allowed access to what parts of the show, because I think that the whole booking yeah. system wouldn't wouldn't necessarily apply to press. I mean, there's a danger here that you kind of read too much into what are effectively bullet points on a single slide in a deck, right? Like, so this whole idea, paid media partnerships... It's only a suggestion. It might not happen. We also don't know quite what it means. But this, there will be much it more to be, that that we'd need to be with the ESA in one of their pitch meetings to truly understand. The thing that I find very, very difficult to imagine is that E3 is no longer a place where CD Projekt go to show their game behind closed doors to 200 journalists. I just don't. I don't see that changing because why would the industry want that? And the, and the ESA represents its members. It represents the industry. And, and that deck is is to get its members on the side. So I don't think any of this actually points to kind of disaster or freezing out the press entirely. Uh, it's fun to speculate what any of it actually does mean. But I, I think that that kind of cyberpunk experience, developers want that. They want a gap. They want a version of their game to be shown in a way that the average consumer cannot see. Um, and for that, and for those those like hot takes and stuff to be all over the internet. And everybody to be clamouring for a glimpse. It's absolutely classic marketing. Absolutely, what E3 is all about.
the next thing we want to talk about is Apple Arcade, which was supposed to launch today. And it did launch for most people, but it actually launched uh, three days ago on the 16th uh, for certain users uh, with certain versions of iOS. Um, Apple Arcade is Apple's new premium mobile game subscription service. It's $4.99 a month. Uh, there's a one month free trial at launch. You get access to just a bunch of premium mobile games, no ads, no microtransactions, tons of great publishers on there. Um, it looks great. Uh, I do, I do kind of want to, before we get into whether or not this is a cool thing or not, which I do think it's a cool thing. Um, it, it soft launched three days early and apparently none of the developers or publishers that were on the service knew that it was gonna soft launch early. Um, a couple of them actually tweeted about it. I've heard from some other uh, folks kind of anon anonymously that yeah, indeed, no one knew about it. And so some of the builds of the games uh, that were coming in those three days early may not have been the final builds. Um, so it was a little bit of a rocky launch for it. Um, I think it's kind of a bummer because Apple Arcade seems like a really cool service, but Apple's kind of approach to it and messaging around it has been really, really odd between uh, between kicking it off three days early and not telling anybody. And then also their, not the reveal for it, but their, their reveal of the release date, uh, I think a week or two ago, they only showed three games uh, that were kind of like, yeah, those are fine. Um, well, Sayonara Wild Hearts looks amazing, but they have all these great publishers on there. They've got, you know, they've got, We've got Capcom and Annapurna and Finji and, and Lego and Sega and us too and all the all these folks on there and they barely showed any games even though they have this just absolutely outstanding lineup. So they just they have like a really weird approach to it, but I'm I'm generally excited about the service. I'm definitely intrigued. Full confession, I'm actually I've been trying to update my phone while we're recording this to actually see if the bloody things live yet. <laughs> and uh this just in, it's not. Um, but no, I, I I'm I'm intrigued by this. So I I've only just been um trying uh, Game Pass on Xbox like the last um, few months and actually like the, the convenience of having this library of games that I can just download at will and play through and not have to to fork out 50 quid a time or 40 quid a time like and obviously it wouldn't be that much on mobile it'd be what four or five pounds at a time but I I am one of those terrible people that I look at a game a premium game 399 I think can I justify that which is daft because that's 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 less than the Italian sandwich that we had at lunch um, <laughs> and, I mean <laughs> bear, bearing in mind you also got like a vegan Oreo brownie so I did which was, was like so three that, pounds that would have yeah. been, been two games that's my yeah but the thing is like uh, uh, a really good sandwich, I think, is is a lot more satisfying than a lot of mobile games. So. <laughs> I would, agree, yeah, I would agree with that. But then, well, but there are games out there that are as satisfying as maybe not an Italian sandwich, but certainly a half decent sandwich. Like. We are on a massive tangent here that involves lunch more than I meant it to. The point is, I love the idea. I. I play games on my mobile quite a lot, particularly when I'm traveling, because you know it's the one thing you can do. Like you know, like if you're particularly if you're on a train or you know standing and waiting around on a platform, you can you know as much as I could pull out my Switch, it's a bit cumbersome to do so. I can just pull my phone out of my pocket and one-handedly play a game. So the idea of playing more mobile games appeals. I don't tend to justify spending on mobile games. I have long since given up trying free-to-play mobile games because they never give the experience that I'm hoping for because it inevitably comes down to monetization. So the idea of a package where, yeah, I can just download the games I want. And I, I actually was lucky enough to play um, Assemble With Care, which is Us 2's new game. And that's a short two-hour game. I think I got through it in like an hour and a half. Um, it's a puzzle game, very kind of narrative-driven. I don't want to talk, talk too much about it because I think genuinely people should experience it and, and enjoy it. But like that's exactly the sort of thing I like playing on mobile. I like playing Monument Valley, Assemble With Care, Florence, that sort of thing. 80 Days, that sort of thing. 
but I don't spend enough on them. They don't premium games like that don't come out long enough, uh, often enough. So if there is this arcade service where there's just this library, that appeals to me, and I am genuinely tempted to try Apple Arcade. I would argue that you know really solid premium games like that do come out. I mean, maybe not as often as free to play ones, but there, there's a reason for that. They they do come out fairly frequently, and I think I think Apple Arcade has um, Apple has identified an actual problem here. There are. I mean, they, they have like over 100 games that are just all like, I think they're all iOS or Apple Arcade exclusive or there's there's some sort of thing there where they're coming out like first on Apple Arcade or something. But they have like over 100 games and they're all from really solid studios. And most of these studios have made similar premium games before. There, there are a lot of really good premium games out there that don't have ads and don't have microtransactions. But that's exactly the problem, right? Like people have gotten used to this free to play model. And so they see a, a one, two, three dollar game and they just pass it by even though it may be absolutely incredible i i have a friend who just just does not play mobile games like he thinks that mobile games are terrible because he thinks they are all these free-to-play microtransaction heavy things and i fought tooth and nail to get him to play florence and he loved it because it's fantastic and florence is fantastic but it's not the only example of an amazing premium mobile game out there it's just that model has historically not worked for developers because people don't want to pay two or three bucks for a game. And so I, I'm hoping that Apple Arcade in, ends up being a success for the sake of these developers because I these games, they all look amazing. Most of these like publishers and developers I'm seeing just on this like scrolling list on their website are ones that I know have made really good games. And I, fingers crossed for them, I want it to work. I want premium mobile games to have a place in the mobile market. Sure, but quick sort of like, I, I, do, I do agree with you there. I do hope that it it does have the desired effect because I think it's, the mobile game scene there is good games there it's hard to find them it's hard for them to succeed but as a quick sort of straw poll like who out of us is considering getting or not considering will get an apple arcade subscription when it goes live i'll so I'm... get a trial period i would so give you, it a go. okay yeah i would give it a go yeah. if i don't have an apple phone um the thing is though for, right, for that, me that's the actually, thing too. I, I would get it but i don't have apple for me though like the this is probably the only way I am interested in playing even premium games on mobile. I mean, I've, I've played many premium games on mobile, but actually, you know, game, mobile games generally aren't the kind... I mean, I like big games. I like open worlds and exploration and all this. I mean, RPG is my favourite genre. And like Fallout-style RPGs, not like Diablo kind of RPGs. You know, and you don't really... Square Enix has an RPG on Apple Arcade. Well, no, no, but, but it's Square Enix RPGs. I mean, we're not talking Final Fantasy fifteen here, are we? We're talking like turn based. From the bravely default team. Yeah. Okay. I, I think. Sorry. I think. I, you know, we're uh, seamless, massive three D open world first person RPGs don't tend to come from Square Enix, in my experience. I'm just saying that, like, a, the the actually a phone just simply can't run the kind of RPGs I like the best. And that the vast majority of uh, mobile games, like, I do like playing them. I don't tend to get to the end of many. But like the actual the business model of Apple Arcade really appeals to me because I find it really hard to want to spend £4 on, on a mobile game because they're just not not generally the kind of games I, I, I enjoy playing that much. But I think paying one flat fee per month for access to a catalogue of those games so I can sift through them, maybe play five minutes of one, maybe play the full two hours of another, that's probably the way in which it actually makes you know financial sense in terms of my own gaming habits. And what we've all been talking about here is the kind of games we like to play the way we like to play them. And this is how you make the value judgment on Apple Arcade. For some people, it's going to be a slam dunk. For me, just about. I mean, to, to Hayden's point, which is like, who would actually get one? 
I, I, I consider myself like a borderline case, but even I still find it interesting enough. Like I still think this could be the way in which I actually spend more time gaming on my phone with a service like this that kind of prioritizes quality, that prioritizes surfacing the best quality premium games and gives it to me in a way where I don't have to make the value judgment with every single one I play. I just have to make the value judgment per month like with Spotify and Netflix with I will also say in answer to Hayden's question, I'm not getting it because I don't have any iOS devices. I would get it if I had one. However, Google is rumored, not not even rumored, they have actually confirmed that they are testing something called PlayPass. We don't have any details on how much it's going to cost or what it's going to be, but it's apparently an answer to Apple Arcade. So whatever that is, if it's comparable, I will do that. I mean, the, the reason I kind of brought that up, though, is like, because when you consider things like Spotify and Netflix and Amazon Prime and Xbox Game Pass, like we are increasingly using subscription models in day to day and like the thing where for me it becomes difficult to justify is i don't know if i out of all the subscriptions that i use probably spotify is the only one that i definitely would say i get my value out of like i use spotify every single day things like netflix xbox game pass amazon prime like i I mean, maybe maybe it sort of like breaks even, maybe it's fine. But this is the thing. It's like that for me is where the value judgment still comes in. And I know it's not much, but it's like it's one of, you know, half a dozen subscription services I'm signed up to and they're all competing for my time. And am I actually like happy with the money that I'm paying? Am I actually like using this service enough to warrant paying like an extra like five quid a month or whatever it is onto you know the increasingly mounting pile of subscription services that i'm signed up to that that for me is where i'm just still not completely sold on the idea but also like mobile gaming there's something about mobile gaming even very good mobile games that just they just don't really appeal to me i just don't feel like i am their audience and that's fine i can respect there are some very good games on there and i've played some very good games on there but as far as games go it's it's not an area that that i'm ever particularly like hungry for more games on mobile yeah i think that a really good target audience for this that we will probably end up seeing is uh families especially ones with younger kids um, so it's, you know, again, it's a su- subscription service, no ads, no microtransactions. We're not talking about loot boxes this week, but past podcasts, we've had a lot of discussions about issues with like kids getting accidentally into microtransactions. If you have this service, they can play any game on it. There's no worry about that. Um, and you can have it on up to six devices at once. So that seems like if I, I don't have kids, but if I had kids, that would seem like something who were getting into gaming on like a tablet or something. This would be a really good way to kind of introduce them to games. It has like some kind of parental controls. I could, you know, be fairly certain that they were safe playing these games and also that they weren't going to accidentally spend a hundred bucks on like a loot box. Yeah, this is a point that Rob made in uh, Rob Farty, our regular op-ed contributor. He, made, he wrote a piece this week about indie game pricing in general and actually brought up Arcade in exactly that way where he said that you know, Arcade is clearly a family-oriented service and uh, I'll quote him here. So once the service gets its feet underneath it, I really wouldn't be surprised if turning off all my all in-app transactions for your account entirely becomes an upfront option for arcade subscribers, essentially making this a safe option for parents. Um, thing is, though, he also um, so I, I think the 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 elephant in the room um, it's uh, is the fact that for a lot of people in the mobile industry and in game in game development in general, I think there's been a temptation to see Apple Arcade as this kind of savior of the mobile market um, and I think that's a very questionable um, assumption at least at this stage you know, we really don't know how well it's going to do I think across this podcast you can see that there are I mean I, I, I side more with Hayden like I, I respect a great many mobile games I've loved 
some mobile games, but it's actually mobile games is not something I want need in my life in general. It's not really about the work. It's about it's about the function. Like I, I don't I don't have many train journeys where I'd rather be playing a mobile game than reading a book, for example. And that's just my personal habits. And Apple, I don't think has any illusions about that's going to be the case, right? This isn't this isn't this doesn't get everybody playing mobile games. But Rob, another point Rob made in his piece is that he said that he believes that Apple's effort with arcade is likely to be doomed to a niche existence through the simple reality of how games work, which lends itself far less readily to a subscription library than either music or movies do, which I think is what you were saying earlier on, Hayden. That, that this, this, and I, I think this also speaks to, you know, you've got this amazing lineup right now. Um, I think Batch, your piece today about us two, uh, the headline Apple Arcade unshackles the finances from mobile gaming. Um, and I think you just got to ask, like maybe it has done for us two in its game because a studio like us two could be paid quite handsomely to be in that initial 100 games and it's made a game specifically for Apple Arcade. But is that going to remain the case? Um, are games being added to the service in six months time going to be getting all of the money to pay for the entire game from Apple? I don't know about that. You know, So this is, this is a really good and exciting period for Apple Arcade. Um, but as it shakes out, it, you, you have to wonder whether this is going to be the start of a resurgence for premium games or if this is kind of like the last chance saloon. It's going to be like a kind of a dingy bar crowded with all the premium guys just trying to cling on to a little bit of what's left of the mobile market. It's hard to say. And that's the thing. Like It, it, it will all change so much from this early period. So I did try to ask um, us two about... Obviously not exactly how much money Apple had given them because there's no way they'd ever tell me that. Um, but... I did try and ask, like, you know, like the, the nature of subscriptions and and how that how indie developers are paid for them, and with, like I said, like, you know, it's either upfront payments or it's pay per play, and they didn't really answer as such. But like, but he he didn't answer. The first thing he said was like, it, you know, it's it it depends on how it scales because every subscription service that we're all excited about now is going to be massively different in five years' time, which honestly isn't that long a period of time, so. It, it it's it's difficult yeah like with what the opportunity apple arcade presents now will be dramatically different and even i'd say even two three years time depending on how many games apple adds to it and depending on how many people adopt the service mm. and also does this what effect does this have on premium sales outside of apple arcade does this effectively mm. kill the premium market making the premium market a subscription-only business from now on. Because some of these games we've mentioned, Monument Valley, Florence, they made a lot of money not in a subscription service. So actually, these aren't necessarily the kind of games that should need an Apple Arcade. They're from developers' pedigree. They get picked up by the regular press. They get that kind of marketing push that most mobile games don't get. Um, does Apple Arcade hurt the market for regular premium sales so this is this is the other big question of what what happens when you introduce and you know we're, we're looking at this question right across the board in the game stream what happens to the regular market when you start introducing really high value premium subscription services um well you know to look at game pass like we've heard multiple developers say that game pass like as much the game pass their game being on game pass hasn't cannibalized their sales has actually improved it because people will try it on game pass and then they will buy it so that they own it and that was another point i was going to add was that people in the like, games consumers still have this very 
defined idea of ownership more so I'd argue than people in who people who are into or, or more so than people view film and music people are quite happy to not own music if it means they subscribe to a catalogue catalog of all music similar with Netflix and Disney Plus and Amazon Prime etc people are quite happy to sacrifice ownership for the convenience of access but games like you know put the us two feature up and the one of the first or second snarky replies on twitter because of course you get snarky replies on twitter going back to what we were saying earlier was you know our apple arcade means i won't own any games so and they were basically complaining about the fact that yeah i'll have 100 plus games that i can play but i won't own any of them and a lot of Game, avid gamers and a lot of consumers of games still prefer to own what they are playing rather than just access it. Yeah, I mean, I, I, things, I, I feel like that's a bit of an object lesson in novice news, what people say on Twitter in a way. Purely because like, <laughs> I can understand why someone on Xbox Game Pass would play a 60-hour RPG and go, oh, you know, I'll buy this because if it disappears from Game Pass, at least then I can continue playing it. But you just said earlier on, Us 2's game is like an hour long. Like why? Why would you buy that if you can? Because you can play it beginning to end in an afternoon on, you know, on on Apple Arcade. It's it's not a lot. It's not a close enough comparison for me to say because on Xbox, you know, Descenders, which is a downhill racing game, which you can effectively play over and over forever because it's like procedurally generated tracks and stuff, um, can compare to a small atmospheric ambient beginning, middle, and end experience, which takes two hours of your time on mobile. Like, I, I don't think I, I don't think it's, like, necessarily always about ownership. Sometimes I think it's about value. Sometimes I think it's about the way a game is structured, the nature of the game that it is. And I think in, in more of those factors, more of those drivers to push on the device, I think, exist in console gaming than they do on mobile, which is almost... And, and this is tied to the form of mobile gaming itself. It's a little bit more disposable, a little bit more you know, uh, quick and easy by design. Um, and I, I don't I don't know that you'll see the same market force where, you know, it improves sales of a, of a one-hour, two-hour narrative mobile experience because it's part of the subscription service because I don't think the games are similar enough. I do want to distinguish really quick between something that Matt and James said earlier. Uh, you guys, you know, talked about this, about how this isn't going to be like the savior of the mobile market. I mean, I don't think the mobile market needs a savior. Uh, I think the Newsy report uh, came out earlier this week. Mo- mobile's doing fine, but it's it's largely on the back of free-to-play. Like, premium is not doing anything for mobile right now. And I think there is a reluctance with developers to continue developing these, you know, these short beginning, middle, end experiences just because they're not making money. What my hope would be, my optimistic hope for Apple Arcade and then, you know, whatever Google's response to it is, because I'm looking forward to that just because Google does seem to be bigger for gaming than uh, iOS is just just broadly. Um, My hope is that it, it takes some of the risk out of it. Um, like if you know you're going to get paid, I, I mean, again, we don't know what their, their model for paying developers is, but if you, if you kind of have an idea that you're going to get paid X amount for going on Apple Arcade as opposed to just releasing and then having your game disappear, like us too, I mean, granted, they're, they're there at launch, so they probably got a different deal than everybody else, but us too is there even though they had Monument Valley, like Monument Valley was a success, like by premium game standards, and people talked about it, but 
they still thought that it was worthwhile to end up on Apple Arcade. Um, I think it takes a lot of the risk out of developing those kinds of experiences. And my hope is that developers who want to make those kinds of premium mobile game experiences that are short and meaningful and adless and microtransactionless feel that they have a little more freedom to do that with these kinds of services and then maybe start making, you know, kind of weirder, riskier, more interesting things. And that in turn drives Apple Arcade and makes it better and more interesting and more of a valuable prospect yeah. for people. I and mean, with, with us too, I think, specifically us to sort of, I would guess us two's check was bigger than most, but I, but I completely of agree. Course, I yeah. completely agree with what you say there. And what, what I think, what I want for Apple Arcade is for it to be popular enough that, and and for Apple's deal to be scalable enough that when it hits a certain number of users, it actually gives studios that want to make premium games a decent return, and the ability to make games that aren't sort of strangled and choked by the restrictions of the size of Apple Arcade's audience, for example, right? So long as Apple has structured this thing right, so long as it can it can have a fairly small uptake in terms of the proportion of like, the, the whole iOS gaming audience and still be a really kind of robust and uh, economically fair option for developers, then it could be amazing. But like, it, it's not all of those things have to be firmly in place uh, so that if it, if it does get up decent uptake, the money is being returned to developers because otherwise the actual format of, of, of Arcade and the way it's structured could become a restriction on the kind of games are made, not necessarily something that can empower developers. It could have the opposite effect too, but it's really about you know the way that Apple set the thing up and that's something we don't have as much visibility on as we'd like. Last topic for this week is the announcement from Sega and Sports Interactive. They are changing the packaging of Football Manager 2020, and that doesn't sound exciting until you really think about the broader context. So Football Manager 2020 and all football managers going forward um, for the physical release will be now uh, will no longer be in plastic DVD cases. They will be in similar-sized cases that are 100% recycled cardboard with a manual that is 100% recycled paper with shrink wrap that is recyclable, and uh, vegetable and water-based ink. So as Miles Jacobson, the studio director of Sports Interactive, told me back at Gamescom, the uh, ink, you could actually eat it if you wanted to, but I don't think he advised that. Um, the, the aim is to reduce the amount of plastic that um, they are using because... Obviously, we're all fa fully aware, fairly aware of the uh, the issue that plastic pollution is causing. I believe that if, is it something like by twenty twenty or by twenty twenty one, the amount of plastic in the ocean will be heavier than all the fish. Um, something to that ex by twenty fifty. Okay, I'm 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 accelerating the timeline there. I apologise, but the point is there is a lot of plastic out there, and that is a bad thing. Um, rather than just doing this themselves, because as Hayden is no doubt about to observe. Football Manager only uh, has quite a small physical release. About three hundred thousand people um, buy it every year physically, as uh, as uh, Miles revealed on Twitter. But he's calling forward to say, look, we think all entertainment companies, not just games companies, entertainment companies. So every film, CD, TV series, video game should be done in this recyclable packaging. Here on the Football Manager website are our suppliers, and they're going to update that list as they find more. Um, the the idea is to have 
packaging that is made from recycled materials and is itself recyclable. In fact, the only thing that's not recyclable is the DVD itself, the disc itself. Um, but even that can be done through specialist com- uh, companies, which again, he's doing a list on the uh, football manager site. I think this is a fantastic idea. I don't know how well it's going to take off, but I'd like it to. I, I think it's a very good idea, and I think it probably will take off. Like We've seen already a lot of non-gaming companies adopt very similar sort of zero plastic approaches like morrison's the supermarket here in the uk is is currently zoning out all plastic bags and replacing them with recycled paper bags so and that's that's just like one example you know there's a lot of a lot of places you can only get paper straws or wooden cutlery um for examples in a lot of sort of takeaway food places so it's definitely good and i feel like it represents a broader sort of pro-environmental movement that's happening but it's also quite singular in its focus and quite singular in the issue that's trying to solve. You know, that, that figure you gave earlier about by 2050, there being more plastic by weight than fish in the ocean. Like when you think about that, that's, that is a horrifying prospect, but also like, that's not the only problem that's the kind of we're facing from an environmental perspective at the moment, you know, games companies, um, when, when you think about like the electricity costs, for example, involved in running a studio, and you have a lot of high-powered machines and PCs and lighting and servers running all throughout. It's like what these companies should really be looking at, I think, is in you know sourcing their energy in, through environmentally sustainable means, whether that's installing solar panels or switching to green providers. And I don't know if that's something that sports interactive are doing i i would hope it is they have they They have have. that's fantastic in the in the open letter where he announced this miles jacobson Mm -hmm. said um we yeah we also encourage people to um switch to to green energy i can't remember if it was in the open letter or in the interview with me but he also mentioned like he's aware that um people who play football manager play for a lot of time Mm -hmm. a long long time so even the digital only yeah the digital uh, users play for a long time Mm -hmm. which is a lot of electricity and pc use so he encouraged them to switch to green energy Mm -hmm. um so it's it it, it, certainly miles and sports interactive are very conscious of all the issues around this in terms of the simple things like um his argument was uh i don't know how much of an impact this will have but because the packaging is lighter Mm -hmm. it will cost less um in terms of shipping and in theory would use like marginally less fuel to ship because it's not as heavy like so it's it's he is aware of the broader stuff this 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 is all great and like for for me the thing that is most exciting or most positive about about miles jacobson of sports interactive here is that i don't know of any other sort of notable or large games company in the uk or anywhere else for that matter in the world that speaks about the environment i think games companies like to think that they're kind of maybe a bit more carbon neutral because you know it's it's a non-polluting industry it's not like oil for example or coal or car manufacturing you know it's like it's a couple of computers and some servers it's fine and we just put a big server farm out in the desert and that uses however much sort of energy so the thing that's really positive is somebody actually stepping forward and saying like hey this is a problem and we all need to address it and it actually really kind of highlights how little responsibility the games industry takes when it comes to environmental issues 
During last year's financial results, uh, Ilka Pananen uh, from Supercell, CEO, uh, said that the studio's goal was to become carbon neutral by the end of 2019. Yeah. I mean, by the end uh, of 2019. That's, that's fantastic. And that's, and that's, yeah, so there's that, one, one yeah, example. Yeah, that, that's there's good. one example. And like Sports Interactive, to, to what Aiden was saying before, how many employees does Sports Interactive have? Batch. James Batchy. Uh, I, I, I don't actually know. I, I, I it's, it's not the biggest small, right? Like It's not going to be it's, more than yeah, it's, it's, yeah. a couple hundred people. Yeah. Like, because Supercell famously has a very small team. Like, it's only, like, 250 people as well. Like, it earns, like, ridiculous amounts of money. And it's got, it's got like, the highest, like, revenue per employee in the whole industry. So it's great. And I, and I think that this is something that a company like Supercell can do. You can also do it specifically where it's based in Finland, which is a very green country, very uh, sustainable-focused country where they, they, they ruled out plastic bags years and years and years ago, and we're only just catching up right now. What I would like to see is not uh, you know not Football Manager, which sold 300,000 physical copies, which actually I'm, I was surprised it even sold 300,000 physical copies, I must say. I was surprised enough just by that. I can't imagine there's too many fish in the sea choking on copies of uh, Football Manager 18 or something. Um, but what I would like to see is why not a Call of Duty, uh, a game that sells 15 million copies at retail. Why not Grand Theft Auto 5, a game that may have sold something like 60 million copies. Uh, why not Ubisoft Montreal? I mean, not to be uh, cynical, but... Why not you... Well, no, I'm going to call Boy speaking, you know, hypothetically, and this is a challenge. It's not like... Which is to say, when I say why not this, I don't actually mean, you know, mean that these companies would ever seriously do this or there aren't significant obstacles. It's actually more just to point out what Aiden was saying, which is this is a drop in the ocean when you think about it because Sports Interactive, let's say, it has 200 employees... Ubisoft has at least two studios that has a workforce about 20 times the size of that in each one. Um, to, to Hayden's point about green energy, like until companies like that are taking it seriously, then, I mean, you know, we, we all hope they heed Mars's call, I suppose. But it's just the, the, whether or not anyone in a free market has any incentive to do this beyond just sense of ethical responsibility. And I think we've seen from you know rockstar for example may or may not have much of a sense of ethical responsibility i would just argue that you're also going to have a much harder time getting american based companies to go <laughs> in line with this as the resident american on the podcast i think i'm allowed to say that um <laughs> as, as a, i mean i i personally care but as a country um especially our our big corporations and our politicians broadly uh we don't care so i'm very sorry about that not not to undermine Mars's point, but like you know, he he said like based on projected sales for Football Manager twenty twenty, they will save. They're hoping to save twenty tons of plastic. Um, and in writing this piece, I actually read up a few plastic because I was going to throw in a little plastic pollution fact in the original piece. We're producing three hundred fifty million tons of plastic per year as a, as a species. So yeah, I mean, that- as you say, it's like it, it's a, it is a drop in the ocean. But I don't know. I, it was difficult for me not to get caught up in his enthusiasm and like imagine a world. Where, okay, so. We are now, we've got a next generation coming up. And he actually called out the next generation consoles in our interview, saying, like, wouldn't it be great if, you know, including next generation consoles? Like, could you say about Activision? Activision, um, presu- I, I don't fully understand how it works, how the manufacturing processes works, but presumably the packaging is done to Microsoft and Sony standards, so it matches the Microsoft and Sony packaging for all other Microsoft and Sony games. Hmm. I reached out to Microsoft, Sony, and Nintendo after this interview and said, look, 
This is what Miles has said. All right, this packaging costs 30% extra, so that's 30p per unit, but it's saving the planet. Is this something we could see from PlayStation 5, Project Scarlet, or just Nintendo going forward? I got two no comments, uh, sorry, two no replies and no one no comment. But they were never going to, to be fair. I still cling to that hope. Like, imagine if Microsoft and Sony both, or one of them, or both of them come out, like, next year and say, right, PlayStation 5, all of our games are going to be in this fully recyclable packaging. And just the sheer, and, and we're going to require all publishers to have this fully recycling packaging. Imagine the impact the games industry would make there. And that would be great, given, uh, again, at the risk of going back to all the negative stuff we've been talking about on this show so far this year, like, when you've got, you know, abuse and crunch and loot boxes and gambling and data leaks and Christ knows what else. Games are dropping plastic and hoping to... And, and you know, imagine the millions of tonnes that would be saved if all three platform holders were on board. That would be a great story for the industry. I think we might I have to just imagine happen. that one day, James, because I'm not sure. <laughs> I know. I can so conceive of any way where it would happen. We'll have to be content with very... sports interactives drop in an ocean choking plastic. <laughs> it is... I will. I will give you this, James. If we were to see anyone do it, my bet would be on Microsoft first because mm. they had the whole thing with the adaptive controller, and they made that whole thing with the packaging and how the packaging was accessible for people to open. And they they showed. I know. I know it's a different matter. But they showed that they were willing to put time and money and energy into researching the best way to package something particular for a particular group of people. And that does mean something. And so I don't I don't know where I don't have their like investor relations site open. I don't know what their stance is on environmental impacts. I'm sure they have one written down somewhere. I don't know what it is. Um, but if any of the three big hardware manufacturers and publishers were to do something like that, Microsoft has demonstrated in the past they will take the time to think about those things. Okay, well so. this is fun, this is fun. Let's do it, sweepstake. Who's gonna, who's gonna be the first to buy? <laughs> see, see I, I'm not gonna go with Microsoft because Microsoft is a huge, huge, huge organization. And I'm not quite clear how it would work committing to that kind of ethically responsible thing in one small part of one small part of what they do. But I think EA could, because I, I don't know, EA, EA really positions itself as a socially conscious thing, and I think it's a, it's a bit of an easier ask for a publisher just to switch everything around. For some reason, EA is the company that popped into my head out of like, the bigger publishers that would actually just make this happen. I would say Nintendo probably won't, but they absolutely should be, because the game cases for the Switch are needlessly large, considering how small the little cartridges like oh, i don't i don't know why they've made them the full like the same height as a as like an actual traditional case because there's no booklet or anything in there so they should be half the size and made of cardboard and there is no excuse wait 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 wait, wait, wait. Nin- hear me out here <laughs> let's have them package everything in nintendo labos yes absolutely <laughs> recycle nintendo labos going, the ones that didn't sell <laughs> yeah. yeah they've got they've got a warehouse full of that stuff so why not it's got to go somewhere nintendo bloody owe it to the planet because they've been doing that for years like gamecube the you know the standard the dvd size cases for like those tiny little discs yeah. ds massive plastic cases for tiny little cartridges same with switch same with um uh gb no gba was uh, 3ds sorry same with 3ds and how many plastic peripherals not just a first party but like third party how many plastic wee fishing rods and wee golf <laughs> clubs and wee pla- you know tennis rackets nintendo owes it there is probably a fish choking on a wee tennis yeah, racket think, right think now think about all of those <laughs> oh drifting joy cons that are currently floating around in the pacific right now i swear like nintendo's the worst 
worst of the offenders. I'm not going to argue that this should be a blip on anyone's radar because it absolutely shouldn't. Yeah. But I, I would suggest that perhaps the reason they are doing that is because people who collect physical video games like things to be the right size and would make a big fuss if something on their shelf was much smaller than something else on their shelf. Again, this should not be this should not and be that, a problem. And that is the reason why we're all going to die one day, basically. <laughs> <laughs> For aesthetics, I'm sure it's worth it. And on that cheery note, that is all we've got time for. Um, You can listen to all our previous episodes on all good podcasting platforms. Uh, If you're on a good podcasting platform, be sure to subscribe and you get the new episodes automatically. That's just how they work. Um, You can find your daily dose of news, insight and analysis at Games in Shop Biz. Guys, thank you very much for joining me and we will be back next week. awkward silence we're moving on um, maybe some sort of football song before we move in no. <laughs> about vindaloo football song football songs do you not have football songs american football songs I guess. it's coming home mm. vindaloo no <laughs> okay they are a, they are a blight on the british culture yeah i agree